and I like Death by DDD. It's a statement. The only perversions that can be comfortably condemned are the perversions of others. I will persist and survive without God's or society's sanction. I will not be punished. I will not be guilty. You are listening to Death by DVD, and we are your hosts. I'm Hank, the world's greatest, and with an insatiable addiction to blood and Mr. Pibb, here's I, Alexander Nash. I hate Mr. Pibb. Unlike the mayor in Slither, I am not a Mr. Pibb fan. That's his favorite type of Coke. Where is the Mr. Pibb? I told your secretary to pack Mr. Pibb. It's the only Coke I like. Goddamn Brenda's floating like a water balloon. The worms driving my friends around like they're goddamn skin guards. People are spitting acid at me, turning you into cottage cheese, and now there's no fucking goddamn Mr. Pibb! Jesus Christ, Jack, let me get right on it. Greg Henry giving it both barrels. So it's Black History Month, and we thought that we would shine the dirt off of, uh, I guess you could call it a lesser-known film. I think recently this movie's gotten a bit of resurgence and was remade in 2014, but we are going to be discussing 1973's Ganja and Hess. Yes, starring Dwayne Jones from Night of the Living Dead fame, and this movie has always been kind of lauded over the years. I mean, it's, it's a minor film. Not a lot of people have seen it, but like in the horror community, it's always been brought up. I've I can't remember who put it out originally, if it was maybe Blue Underground on DVD or uh, one of those companies put it out. I can't remember, though. Um, And when it came out, people finally saw the original cut of this film, not the exploitive recut edited version, because the director, Bill Gunn, he had a almost two hour movie and we'll be discussing how kind of vague it is how very artistic and more of a drama and more of an art film that it is and he was tasked of making a exploitive black exploitation basically a uh, vampire film and the producers did not like the final product that he gave them so they took all of his footage re-edited it and made it a more exploitive product and released it as Blood duo, or <laughs> I think there's blood like, couple, and then I believe it was re- recut again and ended up getting another title. And I may be Black wrong. Vampire here. is one I know that I may be wrong here. I was doing a quick Google search, but I think Kino Kino Lorber might have been one of the first to put That's out. Possible, yeah, that sounds about right. I remember it coming on DVD and it being like a big deal because it's like finally available for the first time. But you know what? This is the Blu-ray. I'm sorry because all I saw was DVD or yeah DVD ROM, and that makes me think of the late '90s, early 2000s when you could throw this in your computer and have fun with it yes i'll take you to a website (laughs) that will give you no new information it would just be a still gallery that loaded with java flash or something maybe a bad flash game in 2002 it was a whole lot of fun though but um yeah i don't even really recall the very first time i saw this i think like most people i ended up looking for it because of of who's in it that you see dwayne jones is in it and uh, it's he, what did he do? Maybe one or two other films aside from this that it's really, really sparse from this and Night of the Living Dead. So you the wanted only thing to see that it. Has any note? He had a walk-on role in a movie in the late '80s called To Die For, which is another vampire film. It's a really kind of bad direct-to-video vampire film, and he literally just is. I, 
he's either a cop or a reporter, and I can't remember. He just walks in the room and has a line, and then that's his entire role. And I feel, too, I've seen that just because I looked it up for Dwayne Jones that I wanted to see more of his work. And I think I, I think this because of a lot of reviews and other people's words that I've, I've taken some time to read. Most people take this movie, Ganja and Hess, the wrong way. That's really misunderstood. Original audiences, when it came out, did not understand this movie. It, it completely panned because of that reason. And well, mostly I think in America, though, because in France, it was a big deal because um, Bill Gunn released, like, brought his version, his print to the Cannes Film Festival. And the French really, really took to it and really enjoyed it. But in America, they were looking for basically fucking Blackula again. And the producers just were like, fuck that. I think Gunn even was known to have been said, you know, they want me to make a black vampire movie and I'm not interested in making a black vampire movie in the least bit. And I think that's a little bit of the trouble that can be had with Ganja and Hess is when you look into it, you look up the movie. That's that's essentially what you're going to hear about. You hear about a, a anthropologist that is stabbed by a mysterious knife and becomes addicted to blood after that. And um, that sounds like a vampire movie to me. That sounds like exploitation. And then you journey and venture into this movie and it makes sense why it did well at Cannes, you know? <laughs> There's a, a real great reason for that, that Bill Gunn was a, 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 just a, an incredible artist, an artiste, you could say, an incredibly underrated artist. The man that directed the remake of this film called The Sweet Blood of Jesus, Spike Lee, has said multiple times throughout his career that Bill Gunn is, is a lesser-known genius. It's a shame that people don't know more about his I mean, he work. was a playwright, for God's sakes. He um, was very much into the theater and got brought by... Um can't remember the man's name, but got brought to Hollywood to be a writer and wrote some scripts. He directed a film that never came out. The The title of it is escaping me right now. It's a one word title, but um, it was it got an X rating and the studio just said, nah, it's done. And it was like, I think he was one of the first black directors in Hollywood at the time. And they just shelved his movie. I think this was his second film, his second opportunity. And again, he got fucked by producers because he had a very specific vision of what he wanted to do he was actually trying to say something with film and especially if you were a black director in the 60s the 70s they pretty much just wanted you to make an exploitive product because at the time black exploitation cinema was things like blackula black caesar um you know, uh, Cleopatra Jones, those type of films and they were doing very popular but what's interesting about those is they were pretty much all directed by white or Jewish directors. And this was an opportunity for a black filmmaker to make a black exploitation film. And he did not make a black exploitation film. He just made a film, a very thoughtful and odd film, um, really through the perspective of an African American in America at the time. And almost like the vampire stuff is incidental. If anything, well, even now, I don't think African-American directors are taken seriously, but especially in the 60s and 70s, an art picture was the white man's game, that if you weren't French or Italian or some white NYU student, there was no chance in doing something like that. You had to be some edgy, what they were first calling independent filmmaker. I mean, even something like Putney Swope, that's by Robert Downey. So there was no actual representation of African-Americans. And you look at people like Jordan Peele now, and you go through comment sections on Facebook or look at his trailers, and all it is is just these 
awful comments. Why's it got to be about black people? Why's yeah. it got to be about racism? It's always been. I mean, you can't sit down and watch the same white movies and not see that there is, is such a difference for a reason because white audiences find this an uncomfortable fact and it's uncomfortable because you don't want to face the truth. You don't want to realize that other people, your neighbors, uh, your brothers in this world don't live quite as comfort comfortably as you whatsoever. So when black art is shown to these people, it, it's just constant confusion. They don't under... It's, why is it being shoved down my throat? Nothing's being shoved down your throat. The whole point is we live in a world with other people, and if you're so selfish that you can't realize that, you shouldn't be watching film in general. But that's not truly my point. It's never taking it quite seriously. And constantly, even people like Spike Lee are always like, why can't it just be funny? Why is it always some sort of court jester thing? Why can't art ever... Why does it matter where the art come from, came from or who makes it or what color they are? Why can't it all be taken seriously on the exact same grounds? Why does it have to be a comedy? I wish I wish that Peel guy would just go back to being funny. Okay, he was very funny when he decided to be funny, but you can't look at his art and have any form of appreciation for what it is now or, or see growth and just take it as art. It has to be a color. And that is a, a pretty important theme when it comes to ganja and Hess itself. And what's going to be interesting is over the next hour or so, you're going to listen to two white males talk about <laughs> race and our views on race, which is going to be interesting, but it's all coming from a, a good place, a good heart. I think the surprising thing is, yes, it is a Dwayne Jones movie, but no, we're talking about race and it's not George Romero related, because I think if any cranky chain-smoking white man had a word about racism that was very very important and very before its time it was george romero and just to get into a little bit of ganja and hess um yes the title ganja that being in the title is a reference to marijuana which at the time was basically a bit of relief in the community it's life is fucking hard at least we have Basically, at least we have some marijuana to make it a little bit better. So it, it's kind of a a double play. It's the character's name as well as referencing something that was very large in the community that was actually helping people get through the, the strife of everyday life. Well, try not to do a spoiler this early into it, but if you look at the development of the character Ganja throughout the film, she certainly can be said to be a form of relief for Dr. Hess. So, or Dr. Green, it's Hess Green. Sorry, I, I always get it backward. I think Dr. Hess sounds like a, a cool Well, that's name. kind of a mess of a name. I mean, Hess Green. Green cannot be a first name. Hess? Is Hess a first name? Because I only think of David Hess when I hear yep. it. That's Hess. all it does to me is I think of David Hess and what is the worst thought to have for this movie that, you know, you don't need like a six foot three curly haired rapist in this movie at all. <laughs> well, the, the general idea, because I mean, the base plot of this is completely incidental. The whole I mean, because it is a vampire story. It's about a African dagger that turns somebody into a vampire. But the vampirism is very incidental and very on the side, because truthfully, what this movie is about is about a black man who is having a real hard time with his identity in America and encountering different pieces of his heritage, his current living situation, how all of it kind of feels odd and he doesn't particularly fit in. And also just like it kind of is referencing things like colonialism, basically different ideas of what it is to be black in America in 1973, probably shot in 72, but we're not going to split hairs and all that. And that's 
really the heart of the matter of what the film is about because Dwayne Jones plays Dr. Hess Green. He lives in a giant ass mansion. He is a uh, what would anthropologist? Yeah. Archaeologist. He's a very very wealthy anthropologist. And uh, the the dagger was I I just loved I looked into it and obviously it's not a real place, but the dagger was a, a research on what the Murthians or uh, it's a fictional race of Africans that were addicted. To blood and the wording I thought was really unique and specific when Dr. Green is discussing it that it's not vampires not that they drink blood but they were addicted specifically to the need of having blood which there is a bit of a difference when you look at these words between want and need and it, it's right at the beginning of the film you're introduced to that concept and you don't really think it means anything until you start journeying through what technically is really important stuff and basically what ends up happening is one of hess's friends comes to his home and they have he has a very long monologue about how he feels like and it's very um philosophical because the film itself what's very interesting is the script is incredibly minimal and all the dialogue all the interaction um it seems very uh, improvisational like everybody talks over everybody else everybody's giving uh, like you know when they're reciting the dialogue they're doing it in a very casual way as you would speak it's not like very grandiose scenes of like speaking literature it's like a lot of um, what's going on is muttered it's mumbled at times it's it feels very very real and once his friend basically loses his shit and tries to kill him with his dagger he gets brought back to life, and now he's a vampire, sort of. He's addicted to blood in one way, shape, or form. You got a really great breakdown with that scene, though, that the, uh, the friend is his assistant, so you definitely have some familiarity that these people have worked together. They at least know each other. They know each other on a professional level, but they have this really uh, bizarre conversation, and his assistant, um, George, begins to, you know, kind of tells a joke. He, he gets really drifty with what he's saying, and then he has to take a walk where later on Dr. Green finds him, and he's going to hang himself from a tree. And there's a, a piece of dialogue that I thought was pretty important here where he, he continuously, George tells him, I didn't want to involve you. I just want to get this done. You know, I was going to throw myself in the lake, but I'm afraid of water. And Dr. Green says, well, you know, I just want to let you know I'm the only black person that lives on this block. So the police are just going to come and fuck with me if, if you do something like this. So how about you I'll come get down? arrested. I will be tried for murder if you end up killing yourself and someone finds out. Please get off the tree and come inside. And you've got like this moment of peace and everything feels okay. And then George tries to kill. Well, doesn't try to kill him. George attacks he kills him. him. <laughs> yeah, he, he's asleep. Dr. Green's asleep and George stays, comes in and he murders him. And we later find out through Ganja that George was unstable. And that's about all we get. I'm going to drift a little bit into uh, the sweet blood of Jesus here that it's almost a scene for scene remake. It's very articulate. I think it's really elegant, actually. Funnily enough, you were just discussing how um, natural and how peaceful almost all the dialogue in this movie comes together. And it sounds like, you know, nothing was practiced or forced. The sweet blood of Jesus is fucking Shakespearean. Every line of dialogue is delivered with either a David Lynch amount of overacting or just you know, beautiful stage acting, but everything is so to the point, there's really not a lot for interpretation. But the scenes, I, I've talked about it before and we've brought it up, how much I love the idea of, you know, shooting a movie off the, or shooting a remake off the original script and how more often than not that turns out really crappy, like the uh, 
Eli Roth experiment where they did Cabin Fever and the remake just had no humor, it had no infliction. Pretty much that's what Spike Lee has done in this situation. And it's a very different product. I, I, I think it's an interesting companion piece. Like if you watch Ganja and Hess and you don't quite get it, <laughs> watch The Sweet Blood of Jesus and then it's like, oh, but it also has, it's a Spike Lee joint, so it's Spike Lee's opinions. And I think a lot of what is in Ganja and Hess was retransformed or translated differently with his film and it's not quite as powerful i don't i think i don't think when you get to the end of that product as to where you get to the end of this one i think you get hit with a ton of bricks with this movie as you explained because i haven't seen the sweet blood of jesus but as you explained it to me it seems very out in the open of what the message is and ganjin has the message is a lot more vague and i think it's a lot more personal because it's very bold in the uh, the sweet blood of jesus and really ganjin has so much of it is dr um green's identity in america because i mean he lives in this mansion he's an anthropologist it's 1973 you do not have very many affluent black men um in university style positions like this or you know rich in a lot of different ways and even his son goes to private school he speaks french they both speak french together uh, fluently in a scene and and he starts kind of having weird dreams or daydreams uh, about africa and Eventually, when he does get brought back after he's stabbed, he really kind of starts questioning his place. And he's he was questioning it before, but now he's really questioning it because he's really questioning, like, this, like, rich, white life he's leading. But when he goes, because um, he eventually has to go look for blood, when he goes and deals with this pimp and this hooker... Um, in the inner city because he needs blood and he's looking for a kill. He doesn't feel comfortable there either. And I think that's really what it's the character's trying to say is just, he's this kind of lost man who doesn't belong in any culture and a culture that was a part of his, you know, his heritage, his far past, his whole family's past uh, in Africa. That's something that's kind of been stripped away from him. And he almost longs to somewhat get back to it. Not like, you know, move to Africa and all that shit, but just experience what that felt like. And I think that's really like, cause he does, um, even when he's out searching for blood, he does have these kind of weird hallucinations of this white man in a mask. Who's pretty, it feels like he's leading him around telling him what to do, telling like, you know, like come over here, move over here, do this, blah, 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 blah. And it's almost like he's being controlled by the white man, which you could say is part of his, life is um, his rich lifestyle that even though he is a black man with this lifestyle, he still feels um, like he's being led around by the white man. He doesn't feel comfortable uh, in this position that he's held for so long speaking French and all that. It's just not that it's like beneath him in any way. It's just, it feels like it, it just feels foreign to him. Like someone's forcing him to kind of, act a way that he doesn't feel particularly comfortable with. I feel too religion is a very, very important factor when it oh, comes it's to this. Yeah, the the movie begins with a very triumphant church scene and there's a, a very, very intense sermon going on and um the the Spike Lee film begins a little bit differently. It begins with breakdancing uh, on a giant New York Knicks basketball court which, I mean, it's Spike Lee, so... And it, really, the fun part about watching the remake is counting how many times New York Knicks 
uh, logos show up in the fucking movie. Like, 72. Like, everyone has a Knicks hat. There's no other Does teams. Does star Patrick Ewing? I was really surprised he didn't have a cameo in it. Like, I mean, he really loves the New York Knicks. Very serious movie, and halfway through it, I'm like, shit, I kind of want to buy a Knicks hat now. This is, those look really nice. <laughs> so it also works as a fucking ad campaign. Thanks, Spike Lee. Uh, always keeping it real. I, I really like Spike Lee, and this isn't... Um, funnily enough, I think the best work to discuss because he really just made a, a shot for shot remake. And though it's very, very pretty, it's just not Ganja and Hess. I think it really, even some of Ganja and Hess is a little bit scary, but getting back to, to religion, you've got this, this wonderful sermon happening and throughout the movie, um, Dr. Green slowly. And I, I honestly don't, there's, there's, I think with this movie, there's multiple ways that you can interpret it. And this is one of the parts that I have, I guess you could say a struggle interpreting, the true meanings behind it, if I'll ever know those. But it, it seems to me that he uh, almost, be, you know, that he's so far detached from everything, not just culturally, but it seems like he's a very cold man, and it seems like he has no place in any society and doesn't know where he stands. But you've got that, you know, overwhelming love of Christ, and that's always what you're taught when you read the Bible. If you accept God and you accept Christ into your heart, you are blanketed with love and embrace and a final place in God's true kingdom and and it's it's wonderful it is overwhelming and and throughout the film and especially at the end he he says you know I'm feeling it I I feel at peace and it it almost to me seems like a mission to find peace to find your own true love to find the warmth of God that you don't have to take it as an overwhelming religious experience but the way you were shown on screen was this man's uh you know uh, like Every, every man and woman a star, you are your own god, learning how to love yourself, learning how to embrace yourself and finally realize who you are in a society. I mean, he's a man that hates society and lives in a society he hates, but society also hates him. And you kind of learn and watch him finally learn how to accept maybe himself, I guess, with, with this See, whole re- religious... a little bit differently with a religious angle, um, but this could be like a personal bias on my end. Because the way I kind of interpreted the the religious angle towards the end, because he accepts Jesus into his life, and ultimately what happens is he does die. Spoilers, he dies. He accepts yeah, Jesus. Forty year old movie death. that uh, is widely available, but it's spoilers. The the way I kind of view the Christian aspect of it is, it's kind of a colonialist idea of that's the white man's religion that was brought to him. That is not what his heritage is. And that's kind of the ultimate almost sacrifice of let, like letting Jesus take me away, letting Jesus purify me and take away everything that was left to me. Because I mean, that's basically what we did or what we, what the white settlers, the, the white slave traders did. They abducted people who had their own culture, their own religions enslaved them, took them to America, and then forced their religion upon them and said, basically, your heritage should be forgotten. And that is prolificated throughout, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years in America of basically your culture got left back in whatever particular part of Africa or Nigeria, wherever you like your culture was from. And now this, the white man's God. So ultimately, the the white man's god is what kills him at the end. He finally just kind of gives in, but Ganja does not. Ganja does not accept Jesus, and Ganja continues to live on, and with power, honestly, because she's basically immortal um, for for one thing, and she is very powerful in herself. She's never led around in the film. She's never 
Um, well, she has a very important speech where she in in both films there it's a little bit different in Spike Lee's and again more powerful and triumphant in the original where she says you know I learned at a very age that ganja has got to take care of ganja that nobody else is going to be out there looking for me nobody's going to care about what I do and everything I do in the eyes and it's a very important story as to where her own mother doesn't even believe her that she's been out having a snowball fight but somebody else told her mother that they saw Boyd chasing her and assumes that she's being a slut or you know promiscuous and is is outdoing the wrong thing and that she knew at that point that the world isn't fair no one's going to believe in you you've got to believe in yourself so we establish with Ganja that she's not going to be fucked with that no matter what she will survive that it's a strong independent black woman in a society that doesn't want strong independent black women and she's not exactly. going to let that happen and that's like what I think that story is alluding upon in the film is that no matter what, just because I am a black woman, I will be considered a slut. I will be considered not worthy. Even my own mother considers me these things like she has bought into these racial biases herself. She believes she's shit and that makes me shit. And she's not going to let that happen to her. And you've got something too, that's really heartfelt where she says, my mother never believed in me, but would say I'm pretty. And that's where I learned to never accept my looks that I'm much more than just being pretty. I'm, I'm a human. I have, I can be loved. I can be intelligent. I can be everything that you can be. I'm not just pretty, but I think morality too plays a bit into Dr. Green's uh, situation, especially what happens to him at the end of the film. And as he moves closer to, uh, you know, Judaic Christian religions, he doesn't like the fact, and he's a vampire, you know? So the big thing with vampires is they need blood. And he, there's a really cool scene where he tries at first to take the peaceful route. Mamma mia. But he attempts to take the peaceful route and steal blood from a doctor's office so he doesn't have to harm anyone. And, you know, that doesn't work. I do kind of like the fact that for the first part of the movie, Dwayne is just walking around with a glass of blood. You know, everyone thinks that it's maybe a, a, a cocktail. What are they called? You know, vodka and tomato juice or something like that. But he's just, you know, morning, day, noon, and night in front of everyone slurping blood. And But he finally comes to the point that he needs human blood that has to be fresh blood and it just seems like it's something he's not comfortable with at all it seems like it's the sin and not just necessarily the ten commandments but just taking human life the the right and wrong that i i feel is instilled inside most people that you just know you know you you don't take life you, you don't kill somebody it's not it's not very polite to do <laughs> i mean it's obviously more than that but yeah i think that's a big thing in the in the film itself, there's a lot of guilt that uh, Dr. Green feels and that Ganja definitely does not feel. Oh, the screaming sounds of a child. Yeah. That means you'd literally rather hear anything else, right? Well, what a perfect time for Keith David. Or David Key. Who directed the 1987 H.P. Lovecraft adaptation all about a little boy's life growing up on a farm, changing when an ice blue meteor plunges to Earth and only he and the local doctor believe that its strange root-like tendons are poisoning the farm's water supply and its occupants? Is it Keith David, 
or David Keith. It's David Keith. Thanks for playing another hot buttered round of David Keith or Keith David. Until next time, goodbye and good luck. Once she realizes that, you know, she has to live this way, I think it's just a matter of survival. And once we're introduced with that interpretation of her character through her story, we know that, you know, she's going to survive. But it's to a trick. You know, it, you have loneliness playing the end of this. That It's all very assumed. Everything that you learn and that you see presented throughout Dr. Green's plight and what happens to him. Like, when his assistant stabs and murders him... He goes and he kills himself in the bathroom in a very awful scene where he's in the bath and uh, brushes his teeth with his own sweaty balls and ass water. I hate that scene. It makes me cr It's the only scene that really will make you cringe in the movie. This guy just fucking brushing his teeth with his balls water. Then he shoots himself in the chest and immediately uh, Dr. Green comes back to life and runs into the bathroom and his insatiable love of... He's just thirsty. He doesn't know what to do and he immediately begins drinking his blood. So that's all we really are given to establish that he's a vampire. They don't use those words. They don't say anything. He can go out during the day with no problems at all. It's assumed immortality and uh, bloodlust. Now, in the remake, it's much more vampiric. Of course, he can still go out during the day, but they can't eat anything else without getting violently sick. It's much more dramatic. It's very stereoty stereotypically played out, which you, you kind of have to do for audiences now, but whatever. It's still... It's still fluent. Well, one of the like all the performances are pretty excellent in the film. Bill Gunn plays the friend. Yeah, he plays the assistant, and his performance is very like tortured and like his whole the the few monologues he has in the film because he basically has two two monologues, and um, his whole Harry Carey scene that he's after he's killed his his friend that he goes through is all very like very depressing it's all very sad at this point but it, it it does work for the tone of the film because the tone of the film overall is it's it's not fun there's nothing fun or funny about it yeah this is it not is a light-hearted movie at all no it's all very like depressing and it's like it is a horror film but at the same time not really a horror film at all it's more of a melodrama because like Again, the, the, the vampire aspects, and we keep saying the word vampire, and that's kind of a misnomer because the vampirism in the film is nothing. They just drink blood. Well, if anything, he's an addict. I mean, that's, I think, why it was so important to take note when those words were used and uh, referencing the remake. You get a little bit of a different story, which helps, and pretty much what you're told is that it was like a an ancient civilization that, that was addicted to drinking blood and that they chose to drink blood, not because they specifically craved it or because it was something important to them, but they chose to drink blood until they actually wiped themselves out by drinking so much blood. But then when he's stabbed by the dagger, he, you know, it, it's a mirror image to Ganjin Hess. He comes back from the dead. He's a fucking zombie and he needs to drink blood. So there's a little bit more to it than that. But again, at the beginning of the film, Dr. Green with his assistant, George, discusses 
the, uh, the, the Murthians and talks about the addiction to blood and they never really lead you to you're, you're given a much more sterile product. You're given a much more sterile idea than something as romantic and something as decadent as vampirism. You know, it's not it's not like uh, gothic literature whatsoever. It's it's much more scientific. And I think especially in this time period, the early 70s, the term addiction is something that needs to be key because it's it's very well known now. People would call you crazy for years and just say, you know, you're anti-government. But the Republicans, the Nixon administration namely, pretty much introduced crack to the African-American community, pretty much attempted to turn them all into addicts so they couldn't be part of society and, and function in white society. That's when the war on drugs really got started. It was just an excuse to clean up the ghetto, quote unquote. It was an excuse to like basically arrest people and get them off the streets so we could gentrify the neighborhoods. And... I think that's kind of apt for the movie because when you throw this addiction into the mix, it's it's something that's almost expected. Well, where's the first place he has to go once his addiction starts, though? He goes to the quote-unquote ghetto, which it's not like this is some preferred community for African Americans. It's where they're forced to exist in white society, and it's set up and created by white society. There wouldn't be ghettos if it wasn't for the the white man, pretty much, and that's where he's forced to immediately go. And again, you said this earlier, he's not comfortable when he has to go there. Well, he's he's made fun of, almost. Um, the people in the neighborhood see him standing in his suit and just automatically, like, what, what's up with this guy? He doesn't belong here. He doesn't fit here. And I think that really says a lot to the character of Dr. Green is he's just he's somewhat displaced in society. He's too well um, educated and basically white culture to really belong in the inner city. But at the same time, he's never going to be accepted into the said white culture fully because they will always look at him as a black man in their arena. So he just is kind of displaced in society altogether that he has nowhere to go. And now he's got this addiction problem, which as I was trying to say before is just like, it's, it's something, especially at the time that is just expected. It, it was expected that if you're an African American um, in the 1970s, you're you probably got a drug problem. I mean, it's it's definitely a racist stereotype, and I think that's what the the point of including it really is in this movie is like you know even this affluent anthropologist can be affected by it too. But in this sense, and it, just referencing uh, Putney Swope again, I think it's really a parody point of this movie, and all all Putney Swope is is a very very clever parody, pretty much on how awful. And I'm going to use a weird reference here, but like. You know, you've got that decline of the Roman Empire, and Putney Swope is kind of the decline of one percent white society. It's it's making fun of Donald Trump's when there was just Donald, you know, his dad. It was making fun of awful people like that before they had become, before all those Rupert Murdochs and Donald Trump and those millionaires and and Elon, Elon Musk's really existed. You had a movie like that again, but it's made by a honky. This sense, I think, in a very unlighthearted movie, a very dark and mysterious movie that. The addiction is a, that's why vampirism was chosen to be the form of addiction because it's it's making a parody of this racist stereotype of 
All black people are addicted to drugs. They all live in the ghetto. All this blah, blah, blah bullshit. And you have... They literally suck off society. Yeah. And then you have this very rich man who has become an addict. And it wasn't by his own choice. It was a, it was a complete accident, which, you know, you always got that addiction ain't no accident. It's not a disease. You've always got you some You can really... stop any time. It's your own personal willpower that can blah, blah, blah. But in this situation, even his absolute love of Christ only leaves him with one option. And... That's not a very great option. It's not a really great picture for what it's like to be a black man in white society. The way this movie ends to me does it, it's obvious that the, the white. I, man I find never the, let... the ending depressing. I don't find it uplifting of yeah. like he, he's found Jesus and he's finally found peace. I don't see that at all. I see it as being an incredibly depressing thing of him giving in finally because he just wants some peace. He gives in to everything everybody's ever wanted for, from him which is basically to fade away. Just go away. Accept Jesus and go away. And Ganja just won't do that because it's not just a matter of independence. It's a matter of surviving in a world that doesn't want you to survive. It's not a matter of, I'm going to become affluent in the society that doesn't want me to survive. It's, I'm going to fucking live and prove to these idiots that I can do it. That it's not a matter of anything but the fact that I'm putting my mind to it and I'm going to survive and that's my life. That's her character's entire mission is survival. So if you do have any hope and you do have anything beautiful about the end of the movie, it's the fact that Ganja goes on, that she's not going to lay down, that there is hope. You can take two paths. You can be exactly like Dr. Green or you can be like Ganja. Dr. Green and George at the same time, they both kind of give in to, almost give in to the racial stereotypes that are presented of them and just say, I can't take it anymore. Fine, if this is what you want, this is what you get. And then, but she says no to that. And what happens? She, I'm not really sure with the reanimation of the dead corpse in the. Well, he wasn't fully. I mean, that was too, I think, an interesting scene and something that might have haunted Dr. Green later on that drove him to his his choice of. It's not self immolation. It's not like he set himself on fire, but he kind of let, um, you know, the shadow of the cross burn his soul or burn him essentially so it's a it's a weird reference there but he procures a victim for ganja you know pretty much lunch and when they're trying to dispose of the body he's been reanimated he's breathing and she gets really really upset about it and he forces her to walk away he forces her to leave the situation so at the end of the film when you're going through all this doom and gloom and he has died in the shadow of the cross the victim which is a female in the uh, spike lee joint comes back and you've got this kind of triumphant scene of him running toward her and this beautiful smile as you know she's going to continue on. Continue on with lots of bouncing dong. There's a lot of full frontal male nudity yeah. in this film. <laughs> and it's just like coming at you so it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger as it comes at you. Sweet and cock I, though, you know, got to I don't give know if it was designed to try to culturally make you uncomfortable or if it was just a moment of being like a free moment of just like this is nature, this is nudity, this is beautiful and what it is. Or if it's just because, I mean, in general, any male nudity in a film is usually going to make most viewers uncomfortable. Not all viewers. I mean, I'm all for having all kinds of dong in films because it does say like it, it kind of raises the stakes. It makes everything a little bit more real, a little bit like um, a little less like movie fantasy. Like this is what reality actually is. 
now like it's right in your face. Look at it. I think too, removing some of the constant romantic nature of vampire movies, you always have some really buxom chick that get, takes her top off, and there's always a lot of sexuality and sensuality to vampirism. So not wanting at, at all to make a vampire movie, I think Bill Gunn tried to manipulate that a little bit of like, hey, you know what? Instead of a white chick with double Ds, how about we just uh, big black cock and have it running right fucking at you, right at your face? Let's see how the audience takes that. And they didn't take it very well in the United States. No, and um, I haven't I haven't seen any of the other versions of Ganja and Hess. I've only seen the director's cut, so I don't really know how they may turn an almost two-hour movie into a 78-minute movie with extra footage that isn't in the director's cut of the film. I know the very first cut is like 70 minutes, and then in the late 70s there's a, a third cut of this movie, and I think they took another 35 out of that. There's I don't know what... Possession in the title. I can't remember the, the exact name of it, though. It's something Possession. I just don't know what you could have removed more than that without... You know, like, that's the whole movie. That's the entire thing. You've just taken all of it out. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they took a lot of the more dreamy-type sequences and a lot of the more kind of lackadaisical stuff that's going on because there are a lot of scenes of no dialogue and just... Um, just kind of chilling out. I mean, there's a very extended scene of him going into the attic in shame to drink uh, to drink blood, and it goes on for quite a while. There's a lot of so love I'm sure that a lot of that's trimmed in all of the other versions. Something that I think is is fairly interesting is the fact that it is the shadow of the cross that that is what diminishes his life force. It's not the cross. He doesn't burst into flames when he sees it. In fact, when he comes up with the decision that. He's going to do this, that he's going to die. He goes to church, and he it's the church that we see at the very beginning of the movie, and another very powerful sermon is happening, and he walks inside, and he's baptized, and he, he kind of, I mean, to me in that scene, it looks like he feels overwhelmed with love. It looks like he's ecstatic, but when he's dying, it's... It's like the de- it's like somebody going through withdrawals that they're sick. He's cold. He he and he begins to and this is a, I guess another poignant thing that I, I should have brought up earlier. Throughout the movie, it's addressed that he never can feel warm. He's constantly cold. And then finally, when he is baptized, he says that he feels, you know, warmth. He feels like he's blanketed in love and that he is at peace. And then in the shadow specifically of the cross. And that's what he begs Ganja to join him and come join me in the shadow of the cross, be in the shadow of the cross with me. So there's just something really interesting that it's the fact that uh, Judaic Christianity or religion in general is used as a weapon more than anything else. That it's another plot device for violence in a horror film. So instead of the vampires killing people, which they do, Christianity kills. Yeah, I think that's where my bias is, is like come my bias comes in is just. He accepted it's an implement of destruction. Yeah, that what ends up destructing him is destroying him is accepting this lie that I finally feel warm now that I've accepted Jesus. Come on, just accept Jesus. Everything will be okay. And he dies. He like loses the will to live at that point by just accepting this lie that's been handed to him and been handed to his heritage, his culture for hundreds and hundreds of years. If you just believe this, well, your culture is going to die out. And you're going to die out. And Gon just says no to all of this and just presses on through, I'm assuming, the rest of her life of just, you know, surviving because that's what she is. She's a survivor. Well, the whole fact that they're vampires and you've got the idea of immortality, I guess what you can be left with is the fact that Ganja is going to be a strong, independent black woman forever and is going to 
be a movement. I mean, you could take her whole character as a, sort of a reference to a movement and especially the Black Panther Party and early feminist movements that took women and educated them and taught them you are much more than what white society is telling you you are. She definitely could be a representation of the the permanent change of black women in a white society that it, it's okay to be independent and strong and it's okay to be an equal that these people they might not ever take you that way but fuck them F fuck them if they won't take you that way then rub it in their face every fucking moment you can and that's really what her character is she's it's not that she's loud and brash but I can't remember the exact verbatim wording but she has this whole exchange with Dr. Green about always telling the truth, always saying the truth to a fault, even if it gets her in trouble because she just doesn't deal with bullshit, that no matter what, she's going to say what she feels and she's going to speak her mind because why not? What's the point of being meek and mild that she has something to say and she's going to fucking say it? And she she does. Well, even when uh, that scene where they're having breakfast with a butler, she's like, you could say she's being impolite, but she's just being straightforward about what she wants. I want grape jelly. I want an extension cord for my record player. I want these specific things. And how many and... grits? That was it. Was three things that. Uh... Archie, when you get the grape jelly, and you are going to get the grape jelly, right? Of course, madam. Well, then why don't you get the grits at the same time? Grits. How many grits? You know what? How many grits are, don't you? How many grits? How many grits? Yes. Now, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about is I need a, an extension cord. I have a record player that I want to play downstairs. For a record player? For a record player. You understand a record player? And you understand extension cord. So we got three things going. We got some grape jelly, some hominy grits, and an extension cord. Don't we? Thank you so much. And the, the whole interaction, I think, was really lost with The Sweet Blood of Jesus because you've got Rami Malek, who's a terrific actor, taking the role over. But it was handled very, very differently, and it seems like it's more of she doesn't like him because he is light-skinned because he appears to be white and that just i don't know i th i think having that extra layer kind of takes away a little bit of the mystique of who these characters are and their struggle because they already have um you know pre-existing thoughts i guess and this is a weird way to say it but in ganjin hess none of these characters all we know is that she was in amsterdam and that she was married to dr green's assistant and that they weren't very happily married at that and that he had some problems and because her and Dr. Hess immediately fall in love and he makes her a vampire. We've kind of have glided over that, but, you know, her husband goes missing. She comes to stay with Dr. Hess until he comes back and she fucking finds his body. He's kept it in the freezer for the entire time. And the movie isn't really like a three day, four day period. We don't know how long it's happened, but we don't know who these people are beforehand. So as we're going through the story with them, all we have is what we are given. And then when you go to the Spike Lee movie, they're just, they're just, they're characters. I think that's a big problem. And in well, Ganja think, and Hess, they're again, natural. I haven't seen the Spike Lee version, but the Bill Gunn version is very dreamlike. The entire film is very dreamlike. Things kind of just shift over, like back and forth from scene to scene, and we go into like some kind of very strange dream states. And as Spike Lee is a director, I, 
assume that he just takes most of this material very literally and just makes a fairly narrative film out of what was presented. And this is far from a narrative film. This is more a movie about tone, about emotion, and about ideas. And it's not so much about like presenting the story. This is about alienation and making you feel that alienation. And I think the sweet blood of Jesus, it's it's stylized D-A. It's not just the blood or the sweet blood of Jesus if you go to look this film up. It's it's very, very pretty, and that's something that I, I found a little bit remarkable. Is I'm not as familiar with Spike Lee's recent work as his work throughout the 1990s, but I don't think I've ever seen something quite as pretty, and I think this might be as dreamlike as Spike Lee could get. It is very, very stylized, but it's also sterile, and it's very cold the mansion though it's still covered in african artifacts it just it doesn't feel the same it just looks like a set piece and i think something that i kind of stumbled upon here is the the sweet blood of jesus is very much a movie and it's a linear movie with a beginning middle and end and you can tell that they are actors and they're acting and it's a performance piece ganja and Hess is is I don't want to say experimental, but truly that's what it is. It's an experimental film, but it's so mystical and it is mystifying. You can't f- help but kind of get lost in it as you're going through. And sometimes, too, it's a bit of a struggle because nothing is shown to you in a linear aspect. So as you're trying to understand the story, you know, you've got these preconceived notions as to what vampires are and all of those molds are broken. Everything you know about vampires is handled completely differently. And then you've got this introduction of Christianity, which, you know, if anything, it really seems like it's an implement of doom. And it turns the story into an even more dreamlike idea because you really don't have an understanding what's happening until it ends. And then once the movie's over, I think one of the really important things is the song. You've got this that plays when uh, Dr. Green goes to church, but the lyrics of the song that just pounds throughout the movie is, you gotta learn to let go you got to know when it's all over. And that's just the hook that keeps going over and over and over and over again. And that's pretty much the movie. Uh, that's pretty much the entire point of the movie. you got to learn to let go. you got to know when it's all over. And sometimes it's more evident in your life than you would ever have thought. And I think that's kind of the case when it comes to Dr. Green. He was over before it even started. So while I'm on the subject of you got to learn to let go and you got to know when it's all over, I think that's the end of this episode of Death by DVD, celebrating a, I don't want to say lost movie, but a lesser known film. And with that, the ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. We'll be back next week. The perversions that can be comfortably condemned are the perversions of others. I will persist and survive without God's or society's sanction. I will not be tortured. I will not be punished, I will not be guilty. Dolomite is my name and fucking up motherfuckers is my game. 
we continue celebrating Black History Month with an explosive all-new episode about Rudy Ray Moore. I'm Dolan. I'm the one that killed Monday, whooped Tuesday, put Wins in the hospital, called up Thursday to tell Friday not to bury Sergio on Sunday. I'm the one that had the elephants roosting in trees and all the ants wearing BVD. From the first to the last, I give them the blast so fast that their life is passed before their ass has even hit the grass. See me uptown, downtown, crowned and renowned. Delayed, relayed, mislaid, and parlayed. Hatch, match, snatched, and scratched. Whack, jack, smack, crack, boot black, blackjack, racetrack, and flapjack, and still coming back. If you crave satisfaction, this is the place to find that action. Coming to this theater as this next attraction is the picture that will put you in traction. Dolomite, starring me. Rudy Ray Moore as Dolomite, and that bad Durville Martin as Willie Green. Dolomite. Dolomite. That's for fucking with me, you no-business-born insecure motherfuckers! DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. Yeah, I know it was a blood for me. You see, and I know, I know.